I'm going to share the three communication habits that all of us tend to have, and they make people dislike us. And then, what's behind the habits so that we can change the habits? We dive into all of it right now. Let's go. Helping you win in your work life so that you're winning in other areas of your life. I'm Ken. This is The Ken Coleman Show. So I'm only going to focus on three habits today, but I think these are three nasty little habits that we all can develop quite easily and 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 largely be unaware of them or certainly be unaware of the source to we to where we can get to the point where we can say all right I can make these changes but we're talking about winning in the workplace with people you can't win in the workplace just by showing up just doing your job ignoring everybody else not being cognizant of how you relate and connect with people you just can't I don't care what you say you can't and you might call it winning, but it's not really winning. You will not advance. You will not gain influence if you can't win with people in the workplace. So we're going to talk about how we interact with other people because it's so important. And these are people habits, if you will. The first is controlling behaviors. Now, what does this look like? Micromanaging. Power trips not open to any kind of change or new idea? How many of you know people like that? How many of you are like that? Where you're just, anytime you come into a meeting and somebody hits you with something new that's outside of your sacred cow or uh, the way we've always done it. How many of you know people like that? And then manipulation. You're, 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 You're emotionally, mentally manipulating people. So whether it's micromanaging, uh, weaponizing your seniority, not open to change or new ideas or manipulation, I got to tell you, if, if that is a habit, if you are doing that, I'm telling you, it is a controlling behavior. You are in a habit of trying to control everybody and everything around you. Now, we're going to unpack this a little bit later, but I'm going to go ahead and give this to you to chew on underneath this controlling habit is fear if you are a controlling person you are a feel a fearful person it's just it's that simple control is a maneuver a technique to try to alleviate fear next what's the other bad habit number two people pleasing oh This is exhausting. What does this look like? This habit looks like insincerity because you're always shifting your identity. You come across as one way to some people and one way to other people. And you can have two conversations in the span of an hour and one person got a totally different message and feel and attitude or whatever and someone else got a completely different one. You're a people pleaser, so you're like a chameleon. And this is not healthy. You're perceived as untrustworthy because you're always saying yes, 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 yes. And you say so many yeses that you can't even keep track of them, let alone deliver on them. How about greed? This looks greedy. It looks gross in the sense of I'm all about me and getting ahead. I'm I'm a people pleaser because I'm just saying whatever I need to say 
and doing whatever I need to do to advance. There's no sincerity here. This also looks really desperate. You have no vision for your future, no goals, no clear path. And so what happens is you end up looking like the desperate person just looking for attention from anybody. Can I get your attention? Can I please you? Always pleasing, pleasing, pleasing. It makes you look really weak and desperate. Now, what's at the root of this? It's insecurity. If fear is at the root of controlling habits, insecurity is at the root of pleasing habits. Third, and I'm only covering three today, I think these are the three biggies, where we lose with people in the workplace and thus hold ourselves back. The third behavior, the third habit is disengaged. What does this look like? It looks like you're undisciplined. Looks like you're disheveled as it relates to being prepared for meetings to do your work. It looks lazy. It looks as though maybe you're being a little bit dishonest. See, when people ask you a direct question in a meeting or your leader asks you a direct question and you're fumbling around, da, 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 you may not be dishonest at all, but because you're disengaged, you, you aren't prepared, you don't have an answer, you have no perspective at all, what it ends up doing is it makes you look dishonest or untrustworthy. What else does disengaged behavior look like? It, it, it looks like somebody who is just largely overlooked and forgotten all the time because you don't have any input at all. You're in the meeting, we think. I think you were in the room. <laughs> you know, you're just so disengaged, you are not memorable. And thus you become forgettable. And then the other way that disengaged, uh, we can identify it is, is a person who's just always stuck. They're complaining about being stuck, commenting about being stuck, no progress. They're not moving forward. And so these are signs of a habit of just largely being disengaged. You aren't all in, if you will. Now, what's at the root of disengagement? The root of disengagement is hopelessness. And here's what happens. The funny thing about hope. Hope is powerful. Uh, you show me an optimistic person, and I'll show you a hopeful person. I'll tell you. It's just You show me a, a, a pessimistic person, I'll show you a not hopeful person. Hope's amazing. Scripture says that hope deferred makes the heart sick, and it and it does it in a way that we avoid the pain. So when we don't have hope, what do we do? I think we withdraw. I think this is true in our relationship life, and it's true in our professional life. A person whose hope has waned for a variety of reasons, whatever the reason that their hope has waned, I can tell you that they begin to withdraw. In other words, they disengage. Why? Because it's painful. You ever walked up on a on a hornet's nest? It's a horrible thing. I'll never forget, I was about 15 years of age. I was cutting the grass at my childhood home, and I was cutting along that we lived out uh, kind of in the country in the woods, and I was cutting along the edge of where we let the grass grow a little bit higher at the edge of the tree line, and I was cutting grass, and all of a sudden I began to feel a sting in my calf muscle and I thought well that's odd and then moments later another one another one to the point where I was like what has happened I let go of the lawnmower turned it off and I realized that I had mown over a hornet's nest and they were coming at me now how many of you think that in that moment 
that I stayed right there, grinned and bear it, got back on the lawnmower, and pushed it away from, from harm. How many of you think I did that? What did I do? I immediately began to run. I'll never forget my mom said she was on the front porch and she saw it. She didn't know what was happening. I just all of a sudden, I'm high-stepping it and I'm running away. She knew something was up. She didn't know what was up. It's kind of comical to her. But what was I doing? I was immediately disengaging. I was out. And that's what happens when pain hits us. And so the soul, with a lack of hope, begins to feel the pain of rejection, being overlooked, not involved. And so what do we do? We disengage at work because we don't want to deal with that pain. So coming up next, now that we know the, res- the, the root, what do we do to overcome these habits? I'll tell you. All right, we're talking about three really, really debilitating habits with people that can hurt us in the workplace and as a result, hold us back professionally and financially. So we talked about the controlling behavior, the people-pleasing behavior, and the disengaged behavior. And these are habits. And so we talked about the root. So let's dive into this. We said the root of a controlling habit in the workplace is fear. So once we realize what the root is, we now treat the cause. So if I've got a sore knee and I go see the doctor, the doctor's going to examine the knee, take x-rays, MRI, whatever, and the doctor is trying to get to the bottom of the source of the pain in my knee. And then, and only then, do they come up with a plan of treatment. So If I know that I'm a controlling person in the workplace, uh, I'm probably a controlling person in my personal life. And so if I believe you can, that the root of a controlling habit, a controlling behavior is fear, then I need to attack the fear. So we got to find out what is it that I'm afraid of? So in the workplace, let's keep it to that context today. What are you afraid of? Now, this is gut level stuff. You got to be honest. And I think this is, this is a getting alone. And I think you start with journaling this out. And no one's going to see it so we can be safe. What is it that I'm afraid of? Am I afraid of rejection? Putting myself out there with an idea or going after a promotion? Am I afraid of rejection? Here's another one. Am I afraid of failure? Am I afraid of the unknown? These are the three biggies that I see. Rejection, failure, and the unknown. Three biggest fears. And so that'll help you get started. You could be more specific than that. Write it down. I am afraid of, and I write it down. Now, in doing so, we have to look at, okay, what's the worst case scenario? What if this fear, as I've written it down, comes true? What's the worst case? Then ask another question. Well, what are are the chances of that happening? Here's another question. What would I have to do or would others have to do for this fear to actually come true? And those three questions, what's happening is, is it's allowing you to dissect the fear. As I've said on the show many times before, you put the fear on the witness stand, and let's figure out if fear is telling us the truth and protecting us, or is fear lying and holding us back? So we've got to dig, and we go, okay, 
Now I'm going to go get some feedback. I'm going to share this with some people. Outside the office, inside the office, I want to get some perspective. Because I want to make sure that I'm looking at this as objectively as possible. It's okay, I'm looking at the fear. I'm afraid of this happening. What would need to happen for this to be true? So what do I do to make sure this doesn't happen? And so what happens is, is we begin to change our mindset on the fear, and then we change our actions. You cannot change the way you act until you change the way you feel. So you got a lot of people every year that do a New Year's Eve resolution, right? New Year's resolution, I'm going to lose weight. And you talk to anybody in the gym industry, they'll tell you the gym's packed in January. About mid-February, it dissipates. Why? Because people are just thinking their way through it. They're going, everybody else does a New Year's resolution. I think I'd like to lose weight, so I'm going to try this. But they don't have a deep, abiding conviction, a feeling of saying, I feel bad when I weigh this much or when I don't exercise, and I'm going to do something about it. That's when the habit sticks. So let's look at people-pleasing. If you've got a bad habit of people-pleasing in the office, you've got to get to the root of that. And again, the root of this is insecurity. What are you insecure about? Do you think you're not enough? Do you think you're not good enough? Did you grow up in a home with a mom or a dad where they were verbally abusive and you just don't have high self-esteem? I mean, folks, this is going to be some rough and tough stuff for some of you. you got to get to the heart of it. Do I not think I'm valuable? What's what's at the root of that? Where does that come from? How long have I been dealing with that narrative? So how then can we examine that voice that's driving that habit and go, okay, I got to make some changes here. So can I take inventory of what I'm doing well? Can I get some feedback from people who say, you're really valuable here? Yes, you can. You got to go get evidence. That is the opposite of the voice that's been driving the habit. So if I'm afraid, as I walked you through, put the fear on trial, same thing with the insecurity. I got to go get other evidence that says, you know what? There's a small chance that this is going to happen and I'm going to fail. There, there is a bunch of people giving me feedback that I'm very valuable, I'm very talented here, and that I do have something to offer. Now all of a sudden, I change the voice, the source of the bad habit. See, the habit will change when I have a different perspective. It's literally as though I wish I had my reading glasses in here. It's literally as though I've been seeing myself this way and I put on new glasses and I have a completely different perspective. The hopelessness issue. This is about disengagement. I'm disengaged because I really don't have any hope. Why don't I have any hope? What is your hopelessness about? Are you hopeless that you'll ever find work that you really are good at, that you enjoy? Are you hopeless that you could work in an environment where your leader values you and takes care of you? How do you build a new perspective that'll give you a new habit on the way you see the world? How do you do that? You do that by getting around different voices and different people. And you begin to get around people that are positive about you and about opportunities. Because here's what's happened. You have learned how to be disengaged. You've adopted a narrative that didn't give you much hope. And then you start hanging around with other people who validate your narrative and your view. So in this case, if you want to get over the habit of being disengaged 
and you want to re-engage, you need to fill up your cup with hope. And you will not be able to completely change your perspective on your own. You will need to be around people who share a positive perspective, a perspective that you're looking to adopt. That's what you're going to have to do. And so when you are around those people, they are a constant reminder of what a proper, healthy, positive, hopeful perspective is. And this is enormous. And you will naturally begin to re-engage. And here's the example. I don't know if you've ever seen a movie, and a scene where maybe a system shut down, maybe a computer system shut down, you know, power goes out at the worst time, right? I was watching a movie on Netflix the other day, and I'm trying to forget what movie it was, like 65 million years ago, whatever the movie was. And they're trying to escape. And just when they escape, a dinosaur comes out of nowhere, Nathan, and beats up the spaceship, and the power goes, right? And so it goes away. And so this is what's happened if you are in this habit of being disengaged all the time. Whatever's happened to you, your hope meter just goes, right? And so in the movie, right, circumstances change. They're able to get some new power back. Something happens. And it's inevitably when that moment happens, when the spaceship, if you will, in this example, powers back up, you literally see the meter go, and all systems come online, and they're able to fly away. This is the same thing with engagement. When you begin to see your future with some positive, hopeful perspective. And then you hang around people who not only are that way, but they share that hopeful perspective about your future and they're cheerleaders and they support you and they believe in you. Here's what happens. Just like that spaceship all of a sudden powers up, you will engage in every area of your life. You just, here's why. Because the heart propels you forward. It pulls you, if you will. And that will happen because you have hope. And then the habit of withdrawing or disengaging, just kind of floating through life, you'll be completely present. And people will notice that you're present. So I've walked through these, these habits of being controlling and people-pleasing and, and disengaging. And I gave you the sources and then how you begin to reframe all of this but why does this matter why am i challenging you with this because those habits are holding you back from the life that you desire to live change those habits change your future change your life Well, that'll put a little pressure on you, huh? Got to get to it quickly. Hey, if you are enjoying the show via YouTube, would you help us grow? You can do that by liking the video that you're watching, subscribing to the channel, and then sharing. Also, if you listen via the podcast, give us a follow, a five-star review, and share as well. We would be so grateful for that. Okay, uh, in my never-ending quest to keep you folks informed and then inspired to not get sucked into all of the headlines and the matrix of negativity. Um, I want to cover a couple things here. There is a there is a trend right now, and I think it's going to end up being positive. I think. But I also think it might be incomplete, and I want to address that. And I, 
I'm going to be t- speaking to a broad audience here, but I'm also going to be really challenging those of you that are in management positions. So I've got two headlines here, one an MSN.com article, another an investment news article. And here's the headline. Employee, uh, excuse me, employee well-being is so critical to some organizations that they're turning it into a new C-suite role. AT&T brought on a senior vice president of health and well-being in 2022. Professional services powerhouse EY hired a chief well-being officer in 2021. And management consulting firm Aon hired a chief well-being officer in 2022. Even the CIA hired a chief well-being officer last year. And companies like Delta, the largest airline in the world, hired a chief health officer in 2021. Now, um, these roles are not medical. It sounds medical, but they're really focusing on the mental health and then overall wellness, physical health. Uh, as well as financial health. And and this is this to me is an interesting trend. I think it's a good trend if it's not just about responding to the headlines and responding to the most, shall we say, urgent HR problems. And this is where I'm a little bit cynical that this will turn into anything substantive because big business usually is always responding to something that may end up creating liability for them. And so the world of big business, because we live in this litigious, lawsuit-happy society, they are always about protecting themselves. And in this case, this feels like it could be good, and I hope that it is. But it could also be just about protecting themselves, not protecting their people. We shall see. Around 64% of U.S. workers and HR leaders, excuse me, around 64% of the 1,600 U.S. workers and HR leaders surveyed said they struggled with mental or behavioral issues, according to a March report from Primary Care Practice One Medical. 91% of that cohort said they were less productive because of struggling with mental or behavioral issues. An employer can't afford to ignore these issues. According to Gallup, failing to invest in well-being equates to a loss of $322 billion in turnover and lost productivity costs. Now, there is a growing movement related to this. There's a growing movement of executives who are saying, we need mandatory reporting about employee well-being. So we need some metrics and we need to report it. 85% of C-suite executives believe that organizations should require mandatory reporting of well-being metrics. This from a new Deloitte and Workplace Intelligence study. What is workforce well-being? This is referring to a holistic measure of employees' mental, physical, social, and financial health. Emily Dickens, Chief of Staff for the Society of Human Resource Management. This is the largest uh, association of human resource managers in the United States. She warns that the result of well-being surveys may be less important than concrete steps companies are taking to invest in employee health resources. Okay, she's absolutely right. I applaud her for saying this, and I want to pause here. 
all of the things that I report on in this show, and we're talking about this stuff and coming up with well-being metrics, because you got to come up with the metrics, then you got to measure them, and then you got to report them accurately. You hope they're reported accurately, because this is going to be a stain on companies. So remember this. If a big-time company starts putting out, here are our well-being metrics, and it matches up to what the data says, more on that in a moment, this is going to be a stain on these companies' brands. Because it's not good. The numbers aren't good. So, sorry for being cynical, but I question whether or not these companies will really be honest with releasing the metrics. And are the metrics a recruiting tool to be thus manipulated? Or are the metrics something that leaders are saying, you know what, we're going to share this with our internal employees. We're going to be open. We're going to be honest. We're going to have hard conversations. And we're going to make the changes that need to be made. That's the question. But is the metrics, is the quiet rooms, the mental health days, is that the solve? Or are we treating symptoms with painkillers and not ultimately going towards healing? I think the answer is pretty simple. All of these tactics are worthless. They are nothing more than band-aids, painkillers, and beyond. Until cultures change from the top down to where there are leaders who are humble, leaders who are servant-focused, leaders who lead their leaders well, and make their leaders feel seen, heard, and valued, and then hold them accountable to do the same for the people they're leading until this becomes extremely intentional. And the focus is people first, not profit first. Until this happens, folks, real change is not going to happen. And we will continue to see high disengagement numbers like Gallup puts out every year in their state of the workplace in America. We will still see skyrocketing stress and anxiety and burnout and on and on and on the list goes. We will continue to see divorces skyrocket. We will continue to see unhealthy people at home in their home life because they are absolutely broken down and they are on fire at work. And then we're supposed to just turn that off and walk into the house and speak with love and respect to our spouses and our kids. We're supposed to be fully present in the home when we have been trying to survive for 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 hours straight. Come on, folks. You know that doesn't make any sense. This is a leadership issue. All of this. It's a leadership issue. Period. Problem is we have a lot of unhealthy leaders. And unhealthy leaders can't lead from a healthy perspective. They can't foster a healthy culture. It's impossible. A majority of employees say their health either worsened or stayed the same since last year. Eight in ten respondents identified stressful job duties as the biggest roadblock to improving their quality of life. I can tell you something, folks. 
when I've been in seasons of my life working where I'm stressed out, my life sucks. I eat bad. I don't sleep well. I'm probably not the best husband and certainly not a very good dad. I'm not engaging with my friends, and when I am, I'm just griping. The problem is this study showed a disconnect between what executives and employees think their companies are doing to promote well-being. Listen to this. 89% of executives surveyed believe their policies are helping move toward that goal, but only 41% of employees share the same view. Leaders, you're not aware. You're not plugged in. You're not willing to hear the truth. You're not changing anything. You're making it worse. Thanks for listening to The Ken Coleman Show. For more, you can find the show on demand wherever you listen to podcasts and watch the show on YouTube. You can also find Ken across all social media by following at Ken Coleman.